should never have doubted you. There is the promised land. <laughs> I should never have doubted you. You could always question me, Cora, but never the word of the Lord. As he promised us, so it shall be. And Joshua, select twelve men, one from each of the tribes of Israel. Lead them across the plain into Canaan. Look closely at everything you see, then return with your news. Well, hey, Heritage Church, it's great to be back with you. I want to take a moment to say thank you. My family and I are truly grateful for the love and the care and the support that you've expressed to us as my mom finished her journey in battle with cancer and stepped into the arms of Jesus. It was great to be with family in Southern California and celebrate her life and enjoyed a little bit warmer weather this past week. But I've got to admit, I miss the Quad Cities. And I missed my Heritage Church family, and I'm glad to be back with you. Now, obviously, this is Super Bowl weekend, Super Bowl 48, and many of us soon will be gathering with family and friends to watch the Seattle Seahawks lose to the Denver Broncos. Yeah! Amen. Amen. Then there's others who will gather with the same family groups and friend groups to simply watch the commercials, right? Any guilty parties? Okay, very good. Well, as a lifelong Steeler fanatic and a Peyton Manning fan, I stand before you as a member of what I am calling the Steeler Nation United for a Broncos win. <laughs> Steeler Nation United for a Broncos win, which is hashtag S-U-N-F-A-B-W for those of you that care. Look, it, whether you're a football fan or not, whether you're going to watch the game or not, I'm glad you're here on the weekend of the big game because we're kicking off a big series as a church called Bold Crossings, one that will have significant impact for us as a church corporately, but also us as a church as individuals within it. Now, the series is grounded in the reality that we all face defining moments, these crossroad moments, decision points where what we do matters for us and for others. But even in those significant moments, fear can creep in, uncertainty is present, even the obstacles that are just part of that journey can rob us of God's best, and we don't want that for any of us. And so we're beginning a six-week journey, primarily into the book of Joshua, to position all of us to live boldly amidst change and to experience God's best in it. In fact, the clip that you just saw as the opening bumper captured one of those defining moments for the people of God, the Israelites. Uh, actually, as a group of people, they had a lot of defining moments. And if you have your sermon notes guide with you, if you pull that out, you see on the very first part of it, there's a section that has the different first five books of the Bible. And I'm going to walk through those first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, and kind of an overview to help us understand some of those defining moments. It's in that very first book of the Bible, Genesis, 50 chapters of Genesis, where we see a lot of these defining moments. It's actually a book with a series of beginnings. It's the beginning of light. It's the beginning of life, the beginning of humanity, relationship, nations, languages. 
As the story unfolds from Adam and Eve to Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph, we see God setting apart unto himself a people. Sadly, we also see the beginning of rebellion, of sin, and of death. But of all of those defining moments in the book of Genesis, they all relate to how people handled defining moments and change. After the book of Genesis, we step into the book of Exodus, and right away, right at the beginning, Joseph, who had such a significant influence in Egypt and a significant influence for the Hebrew people, died. And it was the ensuing leadership of Egypt, as years went by, that didn't know Joseph, that felt threatened by the Hebrew nation because they were so numerous, and so Egypt enslaved God's people. And for 400 years, they were under oppression and in bondage, until God sent Moses And what's interesting about Moses is the people he set to free had never known freedom. But in chapter 12, after the 10 plagues, they are redeemed and released and they exit. It's the exodus and they flee. And those defining moments where they chose to handle change in certain ways allowed them to move out into that new freedom. And once they step out into freedom with God, God provides a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He teaches them how to live. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And by the end of chapter 40, we find God residing with his people in cloud and fire in the tabernacle. Now, obviously, if they're going to leave Egypt and travel to the promised land, there's going to be some some moving going on. and, And they move from those two places. And one of the possible routes they took is shown on this map. It's not necessarily, we don't know for sure, but it could have been the route that they took as they moved from one place to another. But after Exodus, in their journey, we find the book of Leviticus, where God is teaching about offerings and feasts, and he's teaching them how to worship, and he's teaching them how to live in righteousness. Until we ultimately get to the book of Numbers. And it's in the book of Numbers that it kicks off with a, with a counting. It's a census. It's where God says to Moses, hey, let's count the, my people. I want you to count males age 20 and older. These will be the fighting men of my nation. And so Moses does that. They count actually 11 of the 12 tribes because the tribe of Levi, they were, they were the temple priests and they were not the fighting men. So out of the remaining 11 tribes, there were 603,550 fighting men. Well over 600,000 fighting men, which probably means, safely to say, we could say there were probably, as it relates to women, like 600,000 600, fighting women and maybe some 600,000 fighting little kids running around, right? It was a lot of people, nearly 2 million people. It's It's five times the population of the Quad Cities. Yet these people were happy and they were expected because they were free and they were moving with God. But man, it didn't take long for them to start to grumble and complain. Yet yet God was faithful and he, he gave them manna and he gave them quail to eat. And they continued in that journey until they landed or ended at a place called the Kadesh Oasis, which is just a little spot located along the east side of the Jordan River. And from there they could look west and they could see the promised land. And it's at that point that God says to Moses, hey, grab a group of guys and send them over to check out the new land. Actually, if you have your sermon notes, God, you can read what he said in Numbers 13. Specifically, he said, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So they select 12. It's kind of the original dirty dozen. Actually, they were a lot different than that, way better. These were the best of the best, the elite leaders in their tribes. And so we end up with guys like Shemua and Shaphat and Egal 
and Palti, Caleb, Joshua, Guel, Gadi, Gadiel, Sether, and Nabi. These guys formed an early special operations unit that goes and conducts a reconnaissance in the land. So for 40 days, they get, these guys, they cross the Jordan River, they end up in the promised land, and for 40 days, they do a sneak and peek. They're moving around, checking out everything that's in there, and they discover very quickly that this is an awesome land, filled with resources, filled with abundance. In fact, in one particular valley, they cut down a, a, a cluster of grapes from one branch, and it was so large they had to put it on a pole and carry it between two people. They continued to do that reconnaissance, that sneak and peek, for 40 days. And when they had finished that journey, they went back to their people to report. Now, I think this would be a good spot to just pause for just a moment and to recognize and understand a very important foundational truth for this whole series and for life. And it's simply this, that how we respond to change defines us. How we respond to change defines us. It either helps us or it hurts us. It either makes us better or makes things worse. It, it either, we either let these opportunities pass by or we seize those moments. And the reality is that change is always an incubator for defining moments in life. Decision points that ultimately define us and those around us. And what we do in those moments matters. And by our response, we either end up living to the full or we end up barely living. Because our response to change defines us. You know, it was in the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City that U.S. high jumper Dick Fosbury responded to change, handled change, even embraced change differently than anybody else in his field. It changed his course and path, but it also changed the course of his sport from that point forward. Check this quick video out. The 1968 Olympic Games proved to be a turning point in the history of the high jump event. Into the Mexico City Olympic Arena came not only a new name to the sport, but a new approach which was to revolutionize the high jump event. Dick Fosbury from the United States demonstrated a new style of high jump which some considered strange and awkward. It was a jump he had devised in the previous years and one which unsettled his opponents. While the crowd at first saw him as a novelty, his continued success at clearing the ever-increasing height soon made it apparent he was a serious contender. Valentin Gavrilov from the Soviet Union failed at his attempt of 2.22 meters, while Fosbury and his U.S. teammate Edward Carruthers cleared their way to a jump off. The bar sat at 2.24. Carruthers failed, and Fosbury took his new style of high jump over the bar and into the history books. Fosbury had won his gold. Within a few years, the Fosbury flop had become the standard method of jumping in this great Olympic sport. That's pretty cool. From going forward to going backwards, from what was known to the unknown. You know, we process change. We need to deal with change, and it can be hard. But it's our response to change more than the change itself that defines us most. And Dick Fosbury handled change differently than anybody else. He not only embraced it, he pursued it, he actually led change. It developed him and the sport that he loved. He embraced it and he led it. And to this day, his method, that method is referred to as the Fosbury flop. 
our response to change does what? Defines us. Now, it defines us, and I can put it in two extremes. Our response to change will either develop us or it will destroy us. I know those are extremes, but I want you to understand the reality is our response either develops as it did for Dick Fosbury or destroys. And we're going to see that it makes better or it makes worse. It either helps or it hurts. And we're going to see in just a moment as we step back to where the Israelites were in the book of Numbers, that that reality gets played out for them in their journey. In fact, if we go back to where we left them, they were reporting back to the people of what they had seen, what they had heard, right? They'd been in the land how long? 40 days, scoping it out, spying it out. They get back and they report as a group. They talk about the fruit that they found. They, talk, they describe this place as a land of milk and honey. And then they start to talk about the people who inhabit the land, that they're strong, that they have strong fortifications, that there's actually giants in the land, the Nephilim, and, they, and how they made the, the Israelites feel like grasshoppers in their eyes. And what ends up happening as they do this report from a one-group report turns into two groups, a group of ten and a group of two. Ten said, no go. And two said, we must go. The two were Joshua and Caleb. Now, that division sparks a debate. The debate turns into a mutiny. They actually talk about stoning, killing Joshua and Caleb. They talk about ousting Moses, selecting a new leader. And they ultimately decide to go back to Egypt instead of going into the promised land. And that's when God shows up. God shows up in the midst of them, and he is livid. He is mad. He is so mad, he wants to annihilate all of them and start a new nation with Moses. And in that moment, that's actually this defining moment for Moses, where Moses could have been the father of the new nation. He could have stepped, okay, go for it. I'm done with these people anyway. He steps in. He says, God, don't do that. Don't do that. And God relents. But you know what? God responds to him. If you look back in your sermon notes guide, Numbers 14, this is what God says. He said, I have forgiven them as you asked, Moses. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, not one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. In verse 29, he goes on. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will, will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. And because they couldn't see God's faithfulness, God's provision or his plan, because they, they wouldn't believe his, his promise or his word or his power, they did not obey his command. And it cost them greatly. And it rippled into the next generations. In fact, if we fast forward a little bit, we get to the book of Deuteronomy, which literally means second law. And the only reason that book exists those books existed because that unfaithful generation that was to die in the desert was so unfaithful, they didn't even pass the law on to the next generation. And so God had to give it again to Moses. 
And once Moses completes that task, Moses dies. And that takes us up to the book of Joshua, which is where we will spend the rest of our series walking and journeying. And we're going to see that the people of God are retested. And we're going to see that their response to change in those moments defines them once again. Let's take a moment, though, to go back to numbers, because I think there are a few things that we can learn from the story to this point. It's a great story, powerful, lots of nuances and details I haven't even gotten into. But I think for us today, there are three truths and there's three next steps. I want to give you those three truths. I'm going to give you real quick. You don't have to capture them now because we're going to hit them again as we walk through them. But they're simply this, that delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. That fear causes us to go back. Fear causes us to go back. And it is costly to balk at a bold crossing. Costly to balk at a bold crossing. So let's go back to that first one. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Now you may be sitting there going, really, Sean? Is that true? Yes, it absolutely is. Obedience is important to God. God rewards obedience with blessing, but disobedience comes with a boatload of consequences. It was the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 15 who said this. He said, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Obedience is important to God. Not partial obedience, full obedience. And delayed obedience or partial obedience is not obedience. It's disobedience. And I wonder if God has told you to do something that you're waiting to do. You're not obeying. You're actually delaying. If he has told you to do something and you're not stepping in obedience, be careful. You are in a very risky place in your relationship with him. The Israelites delayed. They hesitated. I mean, They were just discussing it. They hadn't even fully committed and acted into it. But that was enough for God to show up intending to bring the smack down on them. Because the moment they began to shift their hearts, it was disobedience. And the same can be true for us. In fact, delayed obedience, not only does it bring the, the implications of God's dissatisfaction, even his wrath, it causes us to miss divine moments, defining moments. That delayed obedience causes us to miss those crossroad moments. If we read to the end of Numbers 14, once the Israelites realized, oh man, we made a mistake by not believing Joshua and Caleb, we should have gone. Once they realized that, you know what they did? They tried to go into the promised land at that point, and they did it without God. You know what happened? They got their butts kicked. They were defeated by those on the other side because delayed obedience is disobedience. And there's always a cost and implication. Let's go to the next one. Fear causes us to go back. Fear causes us to go to what we know. Just consider it this way. If you're walking down, walking through the woods, you hit a thorn bush. Or you're walking through the woods, you hit a big spider web. Or you're going down a dark, creepy alley, you get to a point you're uncomfortable. Which way do we go when we react? We go back. We don't keep pushing into that. We go back. And that's exactly how the Israelites responded. They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. 
because it was known. They didn't want to pick the unknown. But when fear creeps in, that's the point when we should be leaning into God and trusting him. In fact, it's the psalmist who said, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I trust God. And that's what we need to be doing when fear starts to creep in in the midst of change, amidst the unknown. God doesn't give us new life in Jesus to live a life of fear. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul, the great missionary church planter, that said to Timothy, he said, for, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. My friends, you and I, we, we are to be marked by faith and not fear. But honestly, sometimes our faith is so small that fear does prevail. I'm reminded of the story of two fishermen. One was experienced, one was very inexperienced. They went out together to fish. That experienced fisherman was pulling in fish all day long. He'd catch small ones and release them. He'd catch big ones and he'd put them in his, his cooler filled with ice. The inexperienced fisherman didn't catch as many, but he would pull in small fish and pull in big fish, but he would release the big fish and keep the small ones. He did that all day long until that experienced fisherman had had enough. He said, hold it, hold it. What in the world are you doing? Why are you releasing the big fish and keeping the small fish? And that inexperienced fisherman turned to him and simply said, I only have a small frying pan. Now, we may snicker at that fisherman who should have realized he just needed a bigger frying pan, but how often do we throw back the big plans, the big opportunities, those big moments that God gives us because we have a small frying pan faith? Because our faith is too small. Where we let the size of the giants and the simple element of fear influence us to the point of going back. That's what the Israelites did on the banks of the Jordan River that day. Fear causes us to go back. Third thing is that it's costly to balk at a bold crossing. It is costly to balk at a bold crossing. You know, the sin of the Israelites cost them hundreds of thousands of lives and decades of time. God said that they would be in the desert one year for every day the spies were in the land. So the spies were in the land for 40 days. How many years were they in the desert? 40. And during that time, 603,548 fighting men died. All the 600 plus thousand, except two. Who? Joshua and Caleb. That's not even talking about the 600,000 women. That's, that's a lot of people. That's well over a million people who died in the desert because one generation balked at a crossing. It's costly to do so. Look, this, this may be one of the more foundational truths for our series. In fact, it was James the brother of Jesus, who said this. He said, remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. It is sin. And the Israelites failed to see, they failed to believe, and they failed to obey. They rebelled, they disobeyed, they ultimately sinned. And with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, the oldest person who would ultimately enter the promised land would have been 59 years old. Everybody 40 and under would have been born in the desert. 
watching their parents and grandparents die, hearing stories about what could have been, what might have been. In fact, let's just do this with me, wherever you're at. If you're 19 years old and younger, would you please stand? Right where you're at. All of our campus, campuses and locations. If you're 19 and younger, please stand right where you're at and just stay standing. Stay standing. Look around, people. These guys make it. All right? These guys make it. They're the only ones that were there the first time, coming back the second time. Oh, stay standing. Stay standing. All right, listen. Now, if you are 40 or under, join our 19 and under people. 40, come on, you can admit it. You can admit it. 40 and under, join our 19 and under. Okay, look around, people. This group represents those who would have been born in the desert, not there at the first opportunity, but will be there at the next opportunity. Now, stay standing. If you are 59 to 41, stand up. All right, stand up. 59 to 41. Look, 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 look. Second time around. Coming up. It's coming up. Those that just stood, you were there the first time. You watched everybody choose not to go in. The next time coming around, you will have the opportunity to choose what will you do. Fascinating to me what happens among a nation. Thank you. Please be seated. We're going to find out next week. I'm not going to steal the thunder of the next step in the journey of what happens at that next opportunity. But I wonder, I, when I look at this, I, how does that happen? How do those numbers happen? How does that, that disobedience happen? I mean, you're talking about a people who were in bondage for centuries, who suddenly are freed, who saw the ten plagues, who saw God part the Red Sea, who walked through it, saw the pillar of cloud, saw the pillar of fire. How do they end up there? I, I think it's fairly simple. They failed to see, they failed to believe, and they failed to obey. They allowed fear to cause them to doubt, and that doubt to ultimately lead them to disobey. They rejected what could be for what had been. They ultimately chose the known instead of the unknown. And they chose comfort, and it cost them. And they dreamed small, and they suffered for it. Okay, so, so what? What do, what do we do with this? Well, many players, coaches, and analysts all agree that Peyton Manning is probably the best quarterback to ever have played football. The dude has, has totally figured out the mental aspect of the game. He's an incredibly accurate passer. His work ethic is phenomenal. It makes him better. It makes everybody around him better. And, and as an added bonus... He's a Christ follower. But you know what? There's, there's three things that make Peyton the best in the game. When he walks up to the line of scrimmage and he looks across his offensive line to the defense, to the opposition, he sees the defense. He sees what they're doing and he understands what they're getting ready to do. And he sees the holes in it. So when he looks, he sees what is and what can be. Also, he believes in his team. He's all in, committed, sold out. He's willing to risk in his team because he's a believer in his team. And the third thing he does in that is that he, he executes boldly. He gets the job done. Because he's willing to risk, because he believes his team, believes in his team, he risks boldly. He gets the job done. He calls most of his plays. He's the master of the audible. Peyton sees, he believes, and then he executes boldly. And I believe in some way that we're supposed to be like that as Christ followers. That we're supposed to be able to see, believe, and to obey, to execute boldly. And I think that kind of forms the, the three so what next steps out of this 
for us. And here's what I mean. Walk with me if you would. The first of those defining moments things is that we need to see what God sees. We need to see what God sees. If, if we look at life without God's perspective, we end up interacting with people and opportunities poorly. We need to see as God sees. And that, is to mean, that means we are to have his eyes. That's, so when we, we see people and we see places and things through his eyes the way he sees the world. Not only looking at what is, but what can be and what should be. That coworker, then, that, that neighbor kid, the person who has wronged you or sinned against you, that uncertain, unknown opportunity in front of you, see it as God sees it. And the only way we're able to do that is to come alongside him in a relationship through Jesus and ask him to give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we can see what he sees. The second thing that we need to be looking for is to believe what God says. The Israelites who stood on the banks of the Jordan at the Kadesh Oasis, they didn't, one, see what God saw. They only saw what was, not what could be. But they also, they also didn't believe what God said. I mean, they knew what God had said. And they had seen God make bold statements and, and command bold things and show up in big ways. They knew it. But yet in their fear, they chose to doubt. Perhaps even ignore what they knew because they were afraid. And we can do the same thing. We can do the same thing. But listen, we can overcome that first by knowing what he says, knowing what God says. And that means we open up his Bible, his word, and we read. And we learn and we memorize and we study. As Peyton is a student of the game, we need to be a student of Scripture. That's how we know what he says. And then, and then we choose to believe what he says. Like a Joshua and like a Caleb, that despite all odds, despite the fact that it looks like that's not even possible, that we choose to believe what he says, that, that his word is true and that it is enough. We need to believe what he says. Finally, we need to do what God asks. We need to do what he asks. Once we know the will of God, a, a true Christ follower, a true disciple, will act without regard to consequences. Without worrying about the cost, without worrying about the risk, without worrying about the suffering, without worrying about the size of the giants. Because when, when we choose to, to just simply obey and do what he asks, then that's where, that's where the giants become irrelevant. And that's where we begin to live life to the full, to the full adventure that it's supposed to be. When, when we see what God sees, and we believe what God says, and we do what he asks, then God does the miraculous, and, and he works out greater purposes in our lives. When we see what he sees, and we believe what he says, and we do what he asks, well, that makes all of our daily choices defining moments, ones with eternal value and generational impact. We need to be able to do what he asks. Because that's where we thrive in life and not just survive. I, I want to give you a question that you can take into your quiet time this week and process and, and really talk to God honestly about this because I think there might be some things for all of us to individually work on. And we need to hear his perspective. But the question is simply this. What are you choosing not to see, believe, or do? 
What are you choosing not to see, believe, or do? What has God asked you to do that you haven't done? What has he shown you that you are trying to ignore? Or what has he said that you are unwilling to accept? It is likely that that thing, that change, is your next defining moment. And it will either develop you or destroy you based on how you respond in that moment, to those moments. What are you choosing not to see, not to believe, or not to do? Or at least tempted not to see, believe, or do? You know, there's a reason why we don't name our kids Shamua, Shaphat, Egal, Palti. It's not because they're weird-sounding names. And there's a reason why we name our kids Joshua and Caleb. They make the list. It's because when we have the courage to see and believe and do, everything changes. Everything changes. A.W. Tozer once said this. I like his quote. He says, There is no limit to what God can do through us if we are a yielded and purified people. Can you imagine what, what God could have done or would have done had the Israelites listened to Joshua and Caleb on that, that day along the Jordan? Imagine what would have been different. You know, when we allow him, God is able to stir our hearts and minds until we are desperately bold for him. And that's where the crazy, cool, radical, defining moments show up. And that's where God does the impossible in our lives. And I wonder, I wonder what your next defining moment is. And I wonder what you're going to do in it. Will you choose to see? Will you choose to believe? And will you choose to do, to act boldly in obedience? Whatever that next moment is for you, balking at it is costly. I, these, these defining moments, these crossroad moments, they come in all shapes and sizes. They come in the form of opportunities and experiences. They, they come in big and small choices. They come in failures and successes and joys and pains. And whatever yours is, it will always be costly to balk at it. And for some of you, the defining moment today centers around Jesus. And your opportunity is to see your sin, to believe him for who he is and believe in him, and then to obey him and give him your life as he asks. That is your defining moment today. And I wonder what you're going to do. If that's you, you can have a simple conversation with him right where you're at, and you can move from life, from death to life. You can move from one side of the Jordan to the other. For others, I think our defining moment is more of like what Jason unpacked for us last week. That we, we have this awakening in Jesus as Savior, but we haven't moved to surrender where Jesus is Lord. And so your next defining moment is to make that crossing. You know, if God is calling you to step out in faith, to trust him at a new level, do it. Do it. Like the Israelites, we all face change, but how we respond defines us. And as a church, man, we're ultimately seeking to honor God through obedience. And that will mean greater risk. It will mean greater commitment. As we seek to multiply disciples and leaders and churches here in the Quad Cities to reach the 200,000 people the Quad Cities do, do not yet know Jesus, 
man, that is a huge opportunity. It is an invitation from God for more. And it comes with, it is a great challenge. It comes with real risk. And it will require God to show up or we will fail. But the first step in that journey is for us to choose to see, believe, and do, and cross in complete submission and surrender. I believe that as a church, we're going to see God show us how he sees. We're going to see him help us believe what he says. And then I believe he's going to help us to do what he wants us to do. I pray that you, as an individual in the context of this church, will respond in a way that brings reward through your obedience rather than consequences through disobedience. If you're not prepared to see as God sees and to believe what he says and to do what he asks, then you're going to need to prepare yourself for some desert wandering, some spiritual wandering. I am, I am so grateful that we are under a new covenant with Jesus, that our sin, which requires death, that death has already been paid for by, by Jesus. And so God no longer walks around killing from on high because the penalty of sin being death, that penalty paid by Jesus allows us to be forgiven and cleansed and made whole and restored even when we mess up, even when we balk, even when we don't believe him, even when we don't see things the way he saw them. Through Jesus, that all changes. But if your faith is limited to a small frying pan faith, you will miss God's best. And I don't want that for you. On the flip side, if, if we can be determined to see God's provision, to believe his promise and obey his commands, then we will know no end to joy and peace no matter what circumstances we face in this life. That's one reason the Lord said to Joshua before he led them into the promised land that 40 years later, he said, this is my command, be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As we continue to unpack bold crossings in this series, as we continue to see how things begin to change, even for the Israelites in their journey, my prayer is that each one of us would step with courage, boldly into obedience to the things God calls us to. Those bold crossings in relationships, in private times, in decisions related to work or life or family, that we would be a people who don't balk at bold crossings. And even as a church, that we would step boldly into the mission that he has given us. So as you head out and go through the rest of your week, my prayer is that you would step into those defining moments. That you would invite somebody to come with you in the rest of this series because everyone faces defining moments and we all need to understand and know what those mean and how our decisions in life in those moments matter to us and others. So I look forward to seeing what God does in the rest of this journey. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather with your people. God, may you be glorified. May you be pleased by how we respond to the defining moments you bring in front of us. I thank you that even though we have balked, even though we have not believed, even though we have not seen circumstances as you do, you have been faithful and patient and you've made a way through Jesus for us to be reconciled to you. And I pray that you would find us a people willing to risk, willing to go, willing to say, I trust and I obey. Even as we journey through this series, Lord, may you continue to find us standing like a Joshua and like a Caleb, willing to say, we must go. And may you receive all the glory and honor through it. May you, may you be able to work always through us and never have to work in spite of us. I pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen.